Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon, and this is our last episode of season one. Oh, boo-hoo, but also amazing. This is a bonus episode where my producer, Jeff Graham, interviews me about what I learned doing this podcast. And honestly, I I couldn't even begin to tell you. I mean, I come up with some good things, but there's so many things I left out. This has been a profound experience for me as a creator, as a, a mentor and teacher. I feel like I've learned so much about intention and play and keeping it weird and being able to be in the hearts and minds of these truly amazing and really different kinds of approaches to the creative life. But I want to give you a present. Uh, Thank you for listening, for reviewing, for sharing it with your friends. If you go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash share, S-H-A-R-E, I have an audio experience, sort of suggestions and ideas about what to do when you have or you fear having a vulnerability hangover. I hear from a lot of people, and I certainly have experienced it myself, that when we put our work out there or we think about putting our work out there, we're so afraid of being that vulnerable. So I've got a few ideas for that. I'd love to share that with you. It's at jenniferloudon.com forward slash share. I've also got some questions for you there. You can totally not answer them if you don't want to and just take the present, but I'd really love to have your ideas for guests for season two, ideas for my solo episodes that we're going to record some of just me you know, yammering on about some things I think are important and uh, a couple other questions. So if you could drop in a few ideas about those, great. If not, never the mind, take that present and my deep thank you. And without further ado, let's jump in. Well, Jen, it has been such a fun ride. I have loved, this is one of my favorite projects I've ever collaborated on anyone with for involving me. And you're such a brilliant interviewer. And what's been really fun for me is to be introduced to so many amazing thought leaders that have actually changed the way I work as well. Um, And I know also in your capacity, you've had some wonderful breakthroughs with guests too that we'll be talking about in just a minute. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you, can you let us in to what it's been like for you to create out loud specifically with this show? Well, first of all, thank you for being amazing, Jeff. And everybody, Jeff also produces the screenwriting show. No, the screen... The screenwriting life is what it's called. The screenwriting life, the screenwriting life, which is a wonderful show. If you're a screenwriter, incredible or a writer of any kind, they are huge fans of Jeff as their producer. And one of of the women of the show, their mother only listens to the show because she wants to hear Jeff. <laughs> so well, I just, I love that. <laughs> I want to say quickly too, you mentioned the screenwriting life. Jen has an episode on that podcast, which is wonderful. Our fans and uh, Megan Lorian cite, cite it as one of their favorites. So, Oh man, thanks for yeah. making me feel good this morning. Totally. It's was such a breakthrough, a really important episode for our fans to just talk about like the self-compassion elements of creation that I think has become a fundamental theme of this show. Show too. It um, has. I, I, I was thinking yeah. about that this morning on my run, how self-compassion keeps showing up in so many of the interviews. And you know, that's a it's a lifelong process to learn. How do we be more compassionate with ourselves? And the thing about the creative life is you try things and they don't always work. I mean, you're about to go into production on a film. 
Yep. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I started off in, in filmmaking, you know how often you, you have something planned for the day and it doesn't work. Especially in filmmaking. I think like compromise and open-mindedness and just like enjoying the ride, maybe in more than any other creative medium is an essential part of filmmaking. So, so true. That gave me I, chills. It's so true because yeah. there's so many people and so many different personalities and intentions that you're working with just so much stuff happens <laughs> the weather changes someone's voice is scratchy the line that you thought was brilliant comes out of their mouth and it sounds yeah. like nothing but blah so that self-compassion is something I've really learned I also think I'm always learning to work with my learning differences and so pronouncing people's names not freaking out that I can't pronounce their names I did that more in the beginning of the season and trusting myself more in each of these interviews that people have been like that's the best interview or I didn't get asked I haven't been asked those questions before mm -hmm. trusting myself more to have more of a conversation that self-trust element, um, it's been fun to watch you even grow in that. Um, and it's also Yeah, you, you, you commented on that a couple of times when we're done with an interview. And you're like, wow, you were really more relaxed, maybe mm -hmm. you said. Or... Right. And it's also interesting for me to hear you. First of all, thanks for sharing and letting us into your personal journey with your own learning disability and how it can you know, affect your confidence. But it also shows me that that inner critic and that inner voice is so much louder than what's actually being seen on the page or in conversation, because I view you as such a sharp and astute talker. Like <laughs> it's probably ringing so loud in the back of your head. Mm. I just never even see it showing up. I don't want to undermine or devalue probably the challenge of working with that, but also just, I think sometimes that inner critic or those blemishes that we see in our own work that feels so loud might not even be showing up for our audience. You know, when you have told me that in gentle ways, when we're finished recording, I'll be like, wow, I don't think, I really feel like I blew that or I missed the best questions or, and you always say something very gentle, but it feels really honest. Like you're not just gilding the lily, as we say, that helps. And, it, and I think that's a big takeaway for me is I tend to go it alone a lot in my creative process because I'm a writer primarily. So I'll just put my head down and go. Collaborating with you has been really joyful. I mean, I feel the same way. It's interesting as a producer to have such a smart, creative collaborator. You know, I work on some shows and they don't know how to record audio or they don't necessarily have creative opinions. It's been not only great to work with someone who can like send me beautifully edited shows, you know, to help me put them together, but has it contributes and offers opinions in a way that does feel collaborative. I think when you're building your creative community and it's so important to have one, find people who you kind of are on the same wavelength with, you know, yeah. because they're out there and having them, I think is greater than the sum of its parts. Well said. Uh, well, speaking of um, well said, I want to get into <laughs> some of these amazing moments with our guests. First of all, I want to talk about Anne Laura LeCumph. I know for you, that was a really kind of breakthrough interview. And also just personally, I'll say for me too, I didn't know Anne Laura LeCumph's work at all. And she had so many amazing and generous things to say about what it means to create. But I want to start with this clip about toxic originality. Creativity is combinational in mm -hmm. nature. It's always about combining other ideas. And something that's very, I love the, the term you just used, it's very toxic. It's this misconception that creativity is this inspirational muse that is going to come and whisper something completely new to your ear and then you're going to create it whereas it doesn't work like that usually most of what is perceived as original is a combination of ideas from people who came before you 
And what you can usually do, and this is one of the best ways to bring value, is to just kind of like share your own different tweak or angle on, on an idea, add a little something, improve on stuff that you've seen done before. And that's an amazing contribution to make. And sometimes I see lots of people who don't even get started with creating content or creating anything in general because they say, I don't have any original ideas. And I tell them, you don't need to. Even curation is amazing and is needed. Curating the three ideas of three key ideas of an author and presenting them in one article for someone to get that very quickly. That's incredibly valuable as well. So there's so many ways to create. The only one that I don't believe in is having an idea that just comes out of thin air and that is completely original and that no human being has had before. I didn't actually realize that she had written about toxic originality or my biggest fear is I actually read it and then thought that I coined the term. <laughs> Do you have that? <laughs> Do you worry about that? Like you take in so much information. You're like, oh my God, I'm so one to make sure I always give credit where credit is due to to whomever affects and influences my thinking. But that, that term came out of my mouth one day. Again, I think it was after a run. And just this idea that, that I see stops so many people that I work with to get them to express themselves, which is if, I, if it's never, it's have to never been said before. I'm sorry, that's impossible. I mean, do you feel that about your filmmaking? That it has to be the oh, most original film? It's both. I, I hear that inner critic telling you something has to be completely original. And then that other inner critic saying, you can't do it. You're not qualified to tell this story. Someone already has. And then you just have to fight through it. I mean, for me, I think what I love about this toxic originality moment is I think our inner critic will use any excuse it can, right? Like to me, the subtext of this toxic originality idea is that you have to guard against anything that could derail you from your creative process because they're everywhere. Just giving yourself per the permission and gift to say like, my taste is important. The art mm. that I already love has curated my own originality. And that's an important part of creation. You know, the things I love have created taste and I'm going to use that to curate what I'm making. I also think, especially for people listening who identify as women, is owning your own experiences. Slow down and pay attention to the things that interest you or affected you or have stayed with you and slow down enough to capture them in some way and build on them with your thoughts or bring in these other maker experiences. And we tend to dismiss our own experiences. And I think too, for our maybe newer creatives or kind of emerging creatives, mm -hmm. I think so much of finding our creative voice is cobbling together the ideas of people we already love and the voices of people we already love. And Ira Glass talks about this is the reason so many creatives quit is because they have really, really good taste. They <laughs> I love, love that really, quote. <laughs> it's so great. It's this idea that we love these huge benchmarks of amazing art and we want to have that same voice. But when we get to the page, we don't have the experience or the craft skills yet to achieve that level. So the gap between our ability of craft and our taste is so wide. So we just need to keep writing and pushing through it so that eventually our abilities match our taste. And I think on top of that, I would add, and I wrote about this in my book, Why Bother? We have to learn as humans and creatives to live in that gap with self-compassion, which is why I think self-compassion keeps coming up on the show because that gap is always there. I don't care how much experience and craft you have. If you're gonna keep growing, you're like, and now I'm gonna do this. I mean, we just watched American Utopia, the David Byrne Broadway show that okay. they Spike Lee record, uh, filmed for HBO. It is transcendent. 
It's I so cried. Funny. I laughed. I danced. He, they took a Broadway show and made it into an amazing filmed experience. Now, you have to know that was a new edge for both those creators. It sounded like such a bad idea. <laughs> Who hasn't seen a badly filmed show, live show, and been like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. It was stunning. It was so funny. if we're not going to keep, if we don't keep growing, we're not going to keep creating because creatives are by nature, essentially cur- curious people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that point is so important, Jen, about the fact that that gap between what we envision and what we're in the process creating is a wide one. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is I've been lucky to work and engage with high level creators is that I almost find that the more accomplished they are, the more insecure they feel on the page in those early drafts, those early Really? Shows. Well, you hear about like Anne Lamott and mm-hmm. I mean, we just spoke with Maggie Shipstead and- Lori um, Frankel. Yeah, Lori Frankel, you know, who's like a multi-time New York Times bestselling author. They talk about that first draft is just getting through it, you know, pushing through the muck and just getting it on the page and recognizing and giving yourself compassion around these shitty first drafts. So I think hearing these hugely accomplished creatives talk about that so candidly has been such a gift that your show has given us. Oh, thank you. You know, and I remember the moment for me, I was writing a magazine column. I was on vacation with my family and I got up early to write and my husband came out and said, how's it going? I'm like, oh, it sucks. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I looked at him really curiously, like, oh no, there's not a problem. I just know my process now. I know that the first draft is going to be boring and insipid and completely unoriginal. And I realized in that moment, I had come so far in my writing career that I could let that be okay. And I think that's what Annie Lamont's interview really gave us, you know, she's written what, 17 New York Times bestsellers now, something like insane, insane number. And she's just like, yeah, it's, it's still that critical voice, but she just doesn't get caught in it anymore. That's so well said. We've been talking on the screenwriting show about how your first draft, we initially use the term barf draft or vomit draft, but the more generous version we've been saying lately is the birth draft. Process of birth is so messy and there's fluid and there's screaming, and, but you create this beautiful thing and you know that it's going to grow and change and evolve. So as you are birthing your first draft of whatever it is, know that just like in real life childbirth, you're doing something physical and exciting and beautiful in exactly what it is and it's meant to be. And we're so uncomfortable with ugliness. That's where that self-compassion comes in again, just to, to love that ugliness and know that it'll become something else. I mean, even when you think about newborns, I think we have this cultural idea that they're these beautiful little creations. And of course they are, but they're all- They often are ugly. I know, they kind of, if we're being honest, a fresh newborn baby kind of looks like an alien who's confused and trying to figure out where they are. So it's like, (laughs) know that your first draft might kind of look like a confused alien, but it's beautiful in its own way. Uh, Well, speaking of that, I think we should talk about Reese Palmer, who- Oh yeah. What, Jen, just what was your experience like interviewing Reese Palmer? Well, I fell in love with her song Seed. So I was a little later to her music than her story of Color Me Country, which is just continues to explode even since we did the episode with her in April. 
She was so generous with how forthcoming she was about her struggles, an archetypal story. I had gotten made at 28 or 27 and then crash, bang, boom. And I loved how she took responsibility for her own role in what happened with her first label and the court case and really recreating herself from this very generous place, but also from, for me, like this is the lesson I had to learn over and over again. No one's coming to save you. Stop waiting for the gatekeeper. Let's go ahead and listen to that uh, moment from Reese. Yeah, I was starting from scratch. I get a phone call from my attorney and he's like, Reese, I am so sorry. He's like, I, I've been arguing with this guy for like the last couple hours, but they feel like they can't work with you because they'd have to start all over again with you because you don't have a built-in following already and that sort of thing. And so they're going to pass. I was devastated for like a week just like devastated. And I was like, I don't ever want to feel that again. I don't ever want to feel that. I'm not, no one else is holding up anything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. No one else is going to keep me from moving forward when I want to do, when I want to move forward. And I'm just not going to be holding to that anymore. There's no one coming to save you. I'm not going to be waiting for any gatekeeper. Mm -mm. So I was like, if I have to wait for this, then I'm never going to make music again. And so from the release of Backport Sessions to today, like I just, I'm very down on people not doing for themselves if they can. I mean, I wrote about that again in my last book, Why Bother? Because for me, that was the huge moment. I had a lot of early success with my books and then I kept wanting to be chosen again, right? And then I finally got chosen by Oprah in the late 90s. And I was like, this is it, this is it. I've been anointed, but no, no one else can choose you. You have to choose yourself or you don't have the integrity to go into that ugliness we were just talking about. You don't have the drive because if it is not coming intrinsically from inside of you, the creative process itself has to draw you forward. And if you're focused on the deal or the interview or getting on Brene's podcast or whatever it is in today's world, you're going to lose the ability to keep going through the ugly. Write that down. I'm putting exactly (laughs) what you just said above my desk. I was just listening to an interview with Bo Burnham, who is a really interesting filmmaker. And he just released this special on Netflix called Inside that he shot and edited in his own home during the pandemic. And it's incredible. It's it's really funny, but a little dark. He was doing an interview around, you know, press for the project. And he was saying, someone was like, what's the greatest lesson you've learned in the last 15 years? And what he said was, you know, when I was in sixth grade doing my school play, or when I was getting paid millions of dollars by Netflix to put this project together, they were the same thing. You know, I think we have this idea that once you make it and someone buys your work or says you're doing it, like that's when you've arrived. The process of making and creating is the same whenever and wherever you're doing it. And I thought that was such an interesting and amazing point he made. Seventh grade talent show. I did a Lily Tomlin impersonation and I had a very embarrassing moment that I won't describe in great detail. It was a costume malfunction and I got heckled in seventh grade. That's the kind of stuff I think some creatives were were processing for years and how to move past that and how to move past those wounds and return to the, the, again, the intrinsic motivation and joy of the process. And the science all says process And authentic pride in your process is what keeps you going. Not the awards, not the deals, not the downloads for the podcast, but go ahead and download all the episodes (laughs) and subscribe and tell all your friends. Yeah. It's just choosing yourself and choosing the process. Mm -hmm. I love that Reese interview was incredible. Two other amazing guests who speak about this all the time are of course, Megan Lorian, who produced that other show we mentioned at the top. And they talked all about the kind of sacred duty that we have to our work. 
Um, that was one of the most powerful moments in all of the first season for me. That has stuck with me. I think about that a few times a week still. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen to it. And the thing that got me all my work, the sample, it got me my, it even got me the Captain Marvel job, is a TV p- spec pilot about a guy who keeps a girl in a box under his bed. <laughs> <laughs> It's every, fantastic, by the every, way. It is fantastic. Every rep I have has said, if you had told me you were going to write that, I would have told you no. But I was obsessed and so curious about these women who get kidnapped as young girls and then never leave. Like even when the doors are open, they don't go because now the prison is inside their mind. And how are we all doing that? How are we all locked in our own ideas of the world and ourselves? So I felt a lot of passion going in and pitching that. The choice is my story. The choice is my passion. And if you don't like it, I love it. And by the way, this can happen even if it gets made because you're going to get reviewed and some critics are not going to like it. it. And you're going to get notes and people are going to go, I don't get it. And it's like, I know, but I do. And I love it. So you have to love it on its own for itself, because even if you got on Oprah's list, that doesn't mean you're not going to get reviewers who don't like it. Right. Like there's no, there's there's no no, perfect. It's always, it is part of the artist, artist, the, the, the process that we're in. So for me, that's where I try to sit. You know, I'm not saying I do it well all the time. There's days I text, <laughs> I text rant Lorian. <laughs> you would need your support system to remind yeah. you, hey, it's about the work. Just go back to the yeah. work. I mean, I felt embarrassed at the question that I asked them because it, it really, I feel like the thing about being a podcast interviewer is you reveal yourself in the questions you ask. And that sometimes in, in retrospective, a little embarrassing, like I can feel my face getting hot right now. <laughs> I do still, there's still a part of me that goes, pick me, pick me. That moment with her conviction, Megan's conviction, Meg's conviction. Can you can you live that? Can you take that in? Can you believe that? That for me personally. I'm just curious on that aside quickly, Jen, like mm-hmm. how, what have you learned about yourself? Cause like you just said, the interesting thing about hosting your own show and giving these interviews is it often does say more about you or you learn about yourself through the process. I think that it is being welcoming to myself when I'm in the conversation that I'm learning. And this is really subtle, Jeff, but if I'm straining I don't know, make something happen, keep my shit together or appear like I'm something special or anything like that. I don't know if it ruins the interview, but it it definitely means I'm exhausted at the end of it. And if I'm really present with the person and curious and listening closely, then it's flow. You know, it's that wonderful creative flow. And I end on a high note. And I think that's just made the lesson for me over and over again in life. One of the hardest things about interviewing is just turning off the, the stage element of what it, it sounds so simple, but just trying to have that conversation. It's really an exercise in presence. Yeah, I love that. Well, I want to let you know that moment that Meg shared that really kind of broke your brain in the best mm-hmm. way. You gave one of those to Meg and Lorian when you came on their show. It was the same exact thing where what you spoke about was the idea that every project that we pursue is a gift because it allows us to grow. What if the thesis statement of creativity was, this is a beautiful way for you to grow in your own human, as I kind of think how you were describing it. Meg had that same reaction. We do these little post wrap-up shows for our Patreon community. And she was like, that blew my mind and broke my brain because I've been working on this project. And all I'm thinking about is where's this going to go? Who's going to pick me? And what if I was just doing it to get better? That was a big gift that you gave to both of them when you came on their show. Well, you know, I got that because I spent four years and 500 pages working on a memoir that failed utterly. And it became the ground for the Why Bother book. There was so much wasted 
time. But then I realized there wasn't, I became a different person because I spent four years examining these moments in my life from a point of view of storytelling. And what we know about the science of storytelling is it changes our brain. I want to ask Jen, because I think so many of our listeners might feel like they're in that muck right now on their projects. Is there anything in retrospect that you wish you could have told yourself when you were in, you know, 2014 buried in this manuscript, feeling like a failure? Don't go into your creative cave alone. So I kept thinking, I will get readers. I will share this. I will get coaching when I get to a certain point. Don't do that. Complex projects need outside help. If you can't afford to hire help, do the creative community thing that you were talking about earlier. We've talked about on some of our episodes. Know who you're creating this for. You know, it's one thing if I was going to say, I'm going to spend four years figuring out my life, but I was trying to write a book for other people and I wasn't doing uh, the algebra of that. The part that makes you uncomfortable, the part that's stretching in this case, it was like, what's the actual narrative arc of this story? So if you feel like you're dodging something, stop because <laughs> you probably are and it's going to come back and bite you in the butt. Yeah, I think those are the two things. Creative caves are bad news for any length of time. Being on our own, being alone, not being in conversation with other people, other creators, or your community. Like I have this big community. I could have been sharing these with them and discussing it with them. And I wasn't. I think that can be hard though, because if we have like community or followers, we feel like we have to be like the authority on a pedestal. And if they see us be vulnerable, it'll decredify who we are as their leader or whatever. But the only thing I think I've offered in my 30 years of doing this work is being the bumbler. (laughs) The goofy bumbler. I think that's probably my talent. So when people connect with me most, when I'm authentically like, oh God, I'm in the mess here. Not that you would ever manufacture that as a, a creator. Right. That would be gross. You just let us in though. It, that's comfortable for me to do. So it's weird that I didn't do it, but I didn't. Well, and you know, it's true is from a creative standpoint, we won't generate honest work if we're not being honest with the people around us, you know? Or it's with like, ourselves. Or with ourselves. So that's such an important lesson, Jen. Yeah. They're also well, painful to learn, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> It always hurts. Us creatives, we signed up for a big, interesting life. I remember, I think it was you. It might have been with Meg and Lorian just talking about like, sometimes I wish I was one of those people who was programmed and wired to just like want to be an actuary. Just, yeah, love and enjoy the process of having your nine to five and coming home. And that's what it is. And But the truth is, if you've been called by the creative gods to create, like that's not who you are and that's not what that is. And like, learn to enjoy the ride. Yeah. Or you can be an actuary during the day, but you're still going to have to come home and create. And if you deny that, it makes you sick. I don't mean necessarily physically sick, but soul sick. It makes you sick. It makes you resentful. It makes you crabby. Repression is one of the most dangerous things we can do to ourselves. It's very tempting though, because the brain doesn't care if you create, the brain just cares if you have enough salt and glucose and caffeine. (laughs) Well, it can be so easy for our inner critic to tell us that it's too late or that we don't have enough time. And one of the best case studies as to why that's bullshit, Angeline Bully, which what an amazing interview, novelist of The Firekeeper's Daughter, a project that was just optioned by the Obamas for Netflix. Let's listen to Angeline talk about getting what some might consider a later start in um, creative success. And I worked as a federal contractor on a couple different projects for Department of Ed. And I would be in the room when conversations would be had about the type of director that they needed. And it was the realization that I would be the best person 
that I would be the best person for this job and going for it, knowing that I was the right person in the right place and uh, had the right background to really own that. That's not confidence that I had when I was younger by any means. And that's why I'm glad that the book, that it wasn't ready to be published until I am who I am today, because that same confidence came through in that last draft that I wrote when I went and got an agent and the book deal, the confidence in the choices, the artistic choices that I made, uh, the craft decisions that I made that came through in my writing. So when I would talk with prospective agents or editors that were interested in acquiring the publishing rights, I could speak with confidence. And I think that was something that had them sit up and take notice to be a debut author, but yet to be solidly behind my convictions of why I wrote what I wrote. I loved talking to her so much. Like she's the kind of person, I I mean, I want to sit down and have dinner with everybody that I've talked to, but she exuded that self-trust and she fought for it in her life. You know, she, she talks about when I, was working on this project, no one was going to tell me that it, that it wasn't worthy. And no one was going to tell me to take it in a direction I didn't believe in. Own what you've been through and bring it to your creative choices. And I think the other side of that coin is give yourself permission to be happy where you are. If I had tried to publish this book in my 30s, it wouldn't have been the beautiful, complete, experiential work of art that it is now. It it's probably so good. wouldn't have gotten... Of option by the Obamas. So and de- debuted at number one on the New York Times and had Reese Witherspoon choose it for her book club and like been named so many best book of the year lists. Yeah, she's just continued to soar with it. And it's a really great story. I couldn't put it down. And my husband loved it too. Amazing book. But I think it could be so easy, you know, like if you are that mom right now with four kids who feels like you never have time for your project, maybe the creative gods are telling you, be a mom right now, take all that in, put it into your creative toolbox and know that in five years, when you write that novel about the beautiful messiness of motherhood, it will be so much better now than it would have been then. The project will be there. I wish I would have been able to tell myself that more when I was raising Lily and, you know, a young mom. Yeah, I mean, that's hard. The pull, because it it feels like, and in some ways it is the most important thing we have is our creative outlet. It's hard to be patient with it. It's hard to be patient. And I think just like remembering that living life is what informs our creativity. So like give yourself permission to do that too. And also for those of you who are listening who are professionals, which I have made my living as a creative for 30 plus years, Sometimes we don't have that option and that can be really frustrating, you know, to say, I want to slow down, but I can't because I need to make this much money. Those are hard times too. Well, one of the things I've loved and that I think makes this show particularly special is you're not afraid to ask those money questions. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always blushing though when I do. I feel like you're talking about that thing you're not supposed to talk about. Well, it's been really illuminating to hear. I think we have this vision that once a professional artist gets their number one New York Times bestseller, they mm-hmm. move into a mansion and this is their new life. But, you know, we've heard creatives whose books are taught in colleges and universities and option by production companies say like, it's still hard. I still have this other job. Like Right, know. or I'm still getting grants 
dance or the cobbling together. Krista Couture was a good one about that. She's Canadian. She's a indigenous Canadian woman and she gets grants. And that was a mind blower for me because I've never applied for a grant, but that's a real Canadian possibility in other countries, you know, possibility as a way to support yourself. Uh, Fellowships. Anne uh, Murphy Paul has a lot of fellowships in her bio and one of the ways that she cobbles together teaching comes up a lot. Jen, do you think your kind of hesitancy around grant applications and fellowships has to do with your, I'm going to just pick it all up on my back and do it myself element of your creative personality? Yeah. Also, I grew up in an entrepreneurial, multi-generational entrepreneur household. In fact, when I got a straight job right out of college, I got a job as a a literary assistant to a literary agent. And I called my dad, dad, I got my first real job out of film school. And he's like, there's silence on the other end of the phone. And then he said, why did you do that? Wow. Why did you get a job? I thought you wanted to be a writer. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also thought like writers make millions. <laughs> True enough. Some of the people I went to school with got right out of the gate and started making a ton of money, but us mere mortals did not. I have a little bit of that too. And I think like that hesitancy sometimes to apply for grants or ask for help, that can be a little toxic in your creative process. I think with your creativity, it feels like you have to author all of it because you have such a strong or particular vision for what you want, what you need as a creative, but like, don't be afraid to let people in. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with the show is just say, look, there's all kinds of models out there for how to survive and how to make it. I mean, when you think about our listeners, do you have like a single biggest takeaway that you hope they lead with, particularly for this first season? I think there's a determination that all of our guests have shown, a determination that burns deep inside of them. There's something that motivates them to create and and there's an essence to it. And everybody's essence is a little different, but that but it's there and it's real and it's it's worth it. And you are in that company. You are no different than Annie Lamont. You are no different than Reese Palmer. You are no different than Maggie Shipstead, Kate Bear, all the people. You're no different. Feel that burning. Tend it. Take it, take it seriously, but hold it lightly. Mm, that is beautiful. I don't know if there's a better way to go out than that. That's amazing, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being there with me and helping this happen and wait for season two and we have gotten new guests and new ideas up our sleeve and don't forget to subscribe so you know when it starts because we don't really know when it'll start. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be soon though. We're, uh, we can't wait to come back for now. Thanks for enjoying uh, create, create out loud season one and we'll see you soon. Just a good interviewer, huh? Yeah, that was great. Oh, God, there's so many things I forgot to say. Oh, well, nature of life, nature of creativity, being in the gap, right? Being comfortable in the gap, letting it go, moving on to what's next. And that's going to be season two. I love your input and I'd love to give you that presence. So if you haven't checked it out yet, go over to jenniferloudon.com forward slash share, S-H-A-R-E, and pick up that meditation, I don't know, exercises, journal prompts, thoughts, thoughts about how to handle, how to deal with a vulnerability hangover. And give me your input about season two. I would be delighted. And if you're gonna miss me over the break, check out the Oasis. You can also go to jenniferloudon.com and just click right there on Oasis. You'll see it at the very top and get on the wait list. We're gonna be opening soon to new members and I would love to, to be there and to be able to support you every 
every single week in a whole different way than the podcast does. It's much more personal. It's much more about how do you keep getting out of your own way. And yeah, so anyway, two things. A present for you. Love your input. And if you want to join us at the Oasis, because you'll miss me while I'm gone, because I know I'll miss you. (laughs) Love to see you there. All right, until season two, what are you going to do? Create out loud.